0: Hello everyone, happy September, and welcome back to Life in a Backpack, a podcast where we talk about minimalism, working online, and traveling the world on a budget. Before we get started with this episode, I just want to let you guys know that any donations that are made to this podcast before the end of the month are going to be redirected to the Red Cross. So for those of you who don't know, the Red Cross is a charity that operates worldwide and they're known as oftentimes being the first people there when there's some sort of natural disaster or war or anything else that requires humanitarian aid. And they're just such a great organization and I wanted to show them some support. So if you want to make a donation to that, you can just use the donation link that's in the description of every episode as normal and I'll make sure that it gets redirected to them. So just to give you some context, right now I'm working on preparing a few regional-based travel episodes where I talk about the logistics of traveling in a particular country or in a particular region of the world. But before we get cracking on those, I just wanted to do an episode where I give a bit of a broad overview as to how to prepare to become a digital nomad specifically. Because unlike going traveling, even though that's something you need to prepare for as well, becoming a digital nomad or being a long-term traveler is something that you need to prepare for in advance. There are a lot more logistics to figure out than if you're just going traveling for a few weeks or a few months. So for example, you need to figure out what you're going to do with your current living accommodations and your possessions. You need to have some sort of income figured out because eventually if you just go without any sort of plan, you're probably going to run out of money. And a lot of income streams do take some time to set up and build. You need to Figure out some logistics, like, for example, what your budget is going to look like and where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. And then also smaller level stuff, like where is your mail going to go and how are you going to do taxes and what's your health care going to look like? And all those other things that you don't necessarily need to worry about if you're only going to be gone for a few weeks. So today we're going to look at some of those financial and logistical things. And just also for the purpose of structuring this episode, this is going to assume that you're planning on leaving a year from now. Certainly this can be done in a shorter time frame, And there are even people who have just woken up one day and said, you know what, I'm leaving next week and I'm just gonna figure this out as I go. And especially if you have the financial means to do that, that can be a viable option, but realistically looking at the things that you should have in place before you leave and that need to get done I think six months to a year is a reasonable time frame for most people. This episode is also going to be structured in rough chronological order, so there are some things just that just take a longer time to prepare for and that need to be started ASAP because they eventually become your limiting factor in terms of when you can leave. And the thing at the very top of that list is having some sort of income stream, because it's very difficult to become a digital nomad when you're already traveling and you have no money coming in whatsoever. And the way you ideally want to approach this is firstly to be earning enough money that you have a little bit of overflow every month. So if, for example, you're planning a monthly budget of $1,000 a month, then it's a good idea to be bringing in 1200 in a typical month so that you have a bit of money set aside for your savings and or in case anything happens and you need some extra cash. And then secondly, you want to have more than one income stream. So I would say ideally having at least three different sources of income would be best. But in any event unless you have substantial savings set aside that you're willing to dip into on a regular basis, having at least two sources of income is a really good idea. Just because, firstly, a lot of jobs that digital nomads do tend to be a little bit finicky and unstable because oftentimes it's gig or project-based work. And sometimes you can't always depend on that money coming in 100% consistently. And then secondly, as with any other job, There's always the potential that you could somehow lose that job or be unable to continue with that work. And in that case, you always want to have some money flowing in. Because, for example, if you're earning $1,000 a month and you're getting that from two different sources and you lose one of those sources, then that's something that you can recover from because you still have those $500 and you probably also have some savings set aside. But if every penny you have is coming from this one source from which you earn that full $1,000 and all of a sudden that goes away, then you're going from having enough income to having absolutely zero income and relying completely on your savings basically overnight. And when I say three different sources of income, I don't mean three different sources of income that are structured exactly the same way, because oftentimes that's just not viable to do, right? So just like with a regular job, if you have three different jobs doing the exact same thing and you're just running from one job to the next job to the next job, that's something that's probably going to be absolutely exhausting and very time-consuming, especially if it's time-based income. So ideally, you want different types of income as well. So for example, you might have one job that you actively do every day where you always have more projects coming up or where you work by the hour and that would be your day job, so to speak, and then have one or two side gigs where that money's coming in more passively and all you need to do is occasionally administer it. So examples of passive income sources is, for example, if you have a substantial amount of money invested and let's say you get dividends on that every month, that's a good passive income source if you have enough money to put aside for that because it's not something that you actively need to put time into earning. Or if you're somebody who's developed some sort of product or service that you're able to sell online. So for example, let's say you've invented a fidget spinner or you've written a book or done anything like that and you can earn money selling that every month or earn royalties on it. That again is something where you can just let it run and the money comes in without you actively having to put more time into earning that money or if you don't have any passive income opportunities, another thing you can do is just find some source of income where you can always earn as much as you need to in order to break even. So a good example of that is gig work, like for example, online translation if you speak a second language, because at the end of the day, if you've done your main job and you're still short on money because let's say you're not getting enough projects that month, then you can always log in and do a basically unlimited number of translation projects And it's not unstable in the sense that there's no available work for you. So you can always make sure that you're covering any gaps in your expenses. But the one that typically takes the most time to set up and develop is your primary active source of income because that's something that often requires some education or skill building in order to pursue. And or for a lot of these, especially if it's gig and project-based work, you need to build a little bit of a portfolio and have some clientele first in order to really get going and build some momentum. Because having those existing clients who can refer you to new people or having that portfolio that you can show people to showcase the work that you've done in the past makes it a lot easier to get new projects. And from them, then the momentum just keeps going and it becomes easier and easier and easier to find work. But it's that initial grind of setting it up that is really time consuming. And that's something that you're going to want to have set up before you leave. So if you're somebody who's looking to pursue a more quote unquote normal job or a traditional job, that's something that I've already done an episode on if you want to go back and check that out. But today I'm just going to use the example of a typical project based job that a digital nomad might have. So for example, being an SEO specialist or being a website designer or something of that nature. So looking, for example, at the pre prep work involved for becoming a website designer. So the first thing you want to do, of course, is to actually be able to build a website. A good way to start with that is to create your own website, which is something that you're going to need because that personal website is going to act as a central hub for being able to recruit new clients and also showcasing some of your past work. So for that, you'll first need a domain and a name for your website. A domain is something that you purchase. It can cost anywhere from 99 cents to millions of dollars, depending on whether your domain is already claimed or how popular that particular name is. But typically people buy just a domain for a couple of bucks and call it a day. The other thing you'll need is the ability to either code your own website or at the very least some sort of website creation platform that you know how to use and that you're comfortable with in order to actually create the website itself, which you'll also then need to do for some of your clients. And then the next thing you'll need is some sort of pre-existing body of work. Because most new clients, when you approach them, the first thing they're going to ask is, hey, well, can I see some of your past projects and some of the work that you've done and that you can then do for me? Or sometimes even, hey, so can I talk to some of the clients that you've had in the past to see what they thought of you and of the work you did and whether it's worth it for me? So of course, you can create some dummy projects to showcase to them as samples, but something that a lot of people do is they start by approaching clients and asking them whether they can create a website for them for free. And not only does this give you an actual legitimate client who is going out into the world and using the actual website that you built for them, which is preferable to just having this dummy website that may or may not actually work in practice. But well, the other thing it does is it gives you a really good feel for a lot of the back-end logistics of the work that you're doing. So for example, you might not quite understand how many edits you need to do and how, what they're going to ask for. So you might develop a website and then the person might come back to you and say, hey, well, this isn't quite the way I wanted it. I actually wanted it to look a bit different. And then you'll have to go back to the drawing board and fix that for them to their liking. So doing those projects for free at first will give you an idea of what clients are going to look for and what things they're going to ask to have changed. Or for instance, you might not know exactly how long it'll take to customize something to a client's specifications so this will give you a better idea of how much you want to charge and how much work you're able to fit into your schedule and then of course when you do that work you have clients to refer back to and you can probably ask them when you approach them like hey if i make this website for you for free am i able to use you as a referral for my future paid clients And then phase three of this is to find some paid work and see how that goes for you. So this is your opportunity to figure out how best to pitch things. So you might go to a website that already exists and then approach the owner of that website and say, hey, like, you know, I've created this sample website. Perhaps I can improve your current web page in this and this way. Are you interested in this service? Or you might focus on approaching businesses that don't actually have an established website yet and point out the benefits of that to them and how economical it is for them to do that. And you might create a sample website for them and show them what's possible when they have one and give them an idea of how much it's going to cost to have and maintain that website over an extended period of time after you are finished your work. Or you might approach a different subset of clients altogether. But in any event, doing this a few times before you really get going is important because it'll give you an idea of how best to adjust your pitches and what people are most receptive to. And also kind of your success rate and how many projects you can expect to get per month. So if you're looking to travel long term, this is something that you'll want to get off the ground as soon as possible. Not only because it's a good idea to have money coming in as soon as possible, but also because even though this sounds like something that you might be able able to hammer out in the span of a few weeks, in reality this is something, depending on the exact career path you're looking at, that could take several months in order to establish and to get the ball rolling. But the long and the short of this is make sure that you're earning enough money before you leave. Make sure you know the job that you're doing and that you understand how to do it in the long term consistently. And make sure that your money is coming from at least two different places. Just to switch gears now though, another thing to get started with right away if you're looking to leave in a year's time is focusing on the place where you currently live and what's inside it. So firstly, for the place where you currently live, this will vary largely based on whether you rent or own. Obviously, selling a house that you own or figuring out how to rent that out or who to leave it with while you're gone is something that's quite a lengthy process compared to just signing over a lease agreement if you're somebody who's renting so that can be a much more lengthy process but even if you're renting you need to figure out when your contract expires because not everybody has a month-to-month lease agreement that they can just leave the last month without any warning so if you are tied to a contract you need to look into whether you're able to sublet that or transfer the lease to somebody else and actually find that somebody else who's willing to take it over once you leave. If you have a month-to-month agreement and you're able to cancel it at any point in time, do be aware that you might have to give a notice of cancellation to your landlord a specific amount of time in advance. And this can be up to six months in advance, depending on the jurisdiction that you live in and the tenancy laws there. So don't wait until a week before you need to leave in order to tell your landlord that you'll be gone in a couple of weeks and no longer paying rent, because that might be something that won't fly. But important also is to make sure you have a game plan for your stuff, because if you've never tried to get rid of your stuff before or if you've never moved overseas, you might vastly underestimate what a big project it is and how much stuff you have and how long it's actually going to take to get rid of it. So there are two basic options you have when it comes to getting rid of your stuff. The first is to just rent a giant storage unit and to stuff all of your things into the storage unit and to call it a day. And that's by far the simpler route, but also the far more expensive route because it can cost a couple of hundred dollars a month in order to rent out that storage space just for your stuff to be sitting there and for you not to use it. But regardless, if that's the route that you want to take, this isn't something that you need to do a year in advance, but it is a good idea to start renting out that space a month or two in advance so that you can slowly take the stuff that you don't use as often and put it into storage so that you're not stuck having to do all of it at once. But I would really strongly suggest at least considering selling some of your stuff as opposed to keeping it. And the first reason for that is just the economics of it. So sometimes the cost of storing your stuff will outweigh the cost of just buying the new stuff when you get back. So at that point, really the only reason why it would make sense to rent out storage space instead is if you're particularly attached to some of your stuff and you don't think you can find a replacement very easily for it that you would prefer. The second reason though is very anecdotal, but I do find that a lot of people who put their stuff in storage and then come back later end up regretting doing so. And that's often because either their plans have changed and they either don't plan to stay in that city or don't plan to live in a permanent residence of the same nature again. So for instance, if you were living in a house before, you might come back and have had a revelation and decide to only live in an apartment. So then you've spent all that money storing all the furniture that used to fit in your house. But because you have a smaller living space now, a lot of that furniture you're going to have to get rid of anyway. Some people also come back and look at their furniture and think, oh my gosh, I really don't want that anymore. Or they've otherwise just moved on with life and with their lifestyle and they end up just coming home only to sell it off or trash it. And that's a really big waste. So if you have a lot of stuff, especially with the stuff that you're kind of indifferent as to whether you want to keep it or not, do consider trying to sell off some of it or giving it to a friend who needs some new furniture so that even if you still have a storage space, at least you're not paying as much money for it and you only have in it the stuff that you absolutely know you still want and are willing to come back for. If you're trying to sell your stuff, I think this is a really good route to take, but you should be aware, especially if you don't have any experience on the secondhand market, that it can take a lot longer than you'd think in order to sell off everything, just because you need to find that one right buyer for your stuff. And in a lot of cases, it can just take months of sitting there, even if it's an item that's really good and that is priced right, in order to find that person who's willing to buy it. And that can also be something that's really time consuming, which is why a lot of people say that it's not worth selling your stuff and that you should just give it away or donate it. But if you're not sure, the way I would suggest approaching this is to just start by selling some of your high value items, because those are the things that you're going to get the best bang for buck for in terms of time investment. And then transitioning towards the lower value items. And you're going to hit a certain point where you kind of feel the resistance and think that to you, it's no longer worth the time in order to sell that item. And that threshold might be at the $5 items or the $10 items or the $20 items. But regardless of what it is for you, if you go in that reverse order of most expensive things to least expensive things, you'll be able to stop when it's no longer worth it and be able to take the rest of the stuff that you don't want to keep and donate it or give it away from there. I'm not going to go too much into the logistics of buying and selling stuff here, though I do have an episode specifically on buying and selling used clothes, so if you want to check that out, feel free. But just in brief... I think a good place to start is to start by trying to buy and sell in person, that is on a platform like, for example, Facebook Marketplace. And the reason why this is a good idea is because it is where, in my experience, most household items will sell the most easily because you're not trying to overcome any sort of fees or shipping costs. And also because unlike selling items on a platform like eBay, you're not paying any fees as a seller in order to list and sell there. But with that being said, there are some things that do sell really well online. So this can be things like, for example, collector's items, or just things that are in really good condition and are really easy to ship. That is, they're of high value and it doesn't cost a lot to ship them because they're lightweight relative to their price. So for example, a good thing to sell online might be a really valuable LP because that's something that doesn't weigh a lot and it's really easy to ship it and it's worth a lot. And not only that, but it is a niche item, so you're much more likely to find a buyer who's looking for it online than you are on somewhere like Marketplace. Whereas an item that's not really viable to sell online is, for instance, your couch. Because just thinking even about the logistics of trying to ship your couch somewhere else can be really expensive and time-consuming. And probably a used couch isn't worth enough relative to its weight in order to justify shipping it to a potential buyer or to have the buyer pay for that shipping and still be able to make any sort of profit on it. But regardless, probably your primary platform for buying and selling stuff in your house is going to be something like Facebook Marketplace. So the way to do this is pretty straightforward. You just go onto your platform of choice and you take a few pictures of the item. More pictures will tend to sell better just because people like to have an idea of what they're buying. You name the item, you price it, you describe its condition and its features, and then you list it until somebody approaches you. And then when somebody approaches you, sometimes they'll try to negotiate the price. And this is a very common practice. So do try to leave a little bit of a cushion when you're pricing your items because you can expect some people to try and haggle a little bit with you. Do be aware also that there are a lot of lowballers on these platforms who will just throw out any dirt cheap price to see what sticks. And so just because one person approaches you offering $10 on a $50 item doesn't necessarily mean that the item is overpriced. It just means that some people are just shooting their shot and seeing if you're willing to let it go for 10 especially if maybe you're in a hurry to sell your stuff and you're willing to accept a really low price for it. But then once you do have a buyer and you have an agreed upon price, usually they either come to your house and pick it up or you meet in some sort of mutually agreeable place and they come with money and you give them the item, you transact, and that's the end of it. The only things to be aware of on these platforms is do be aware of scams. Some people will try to scam you, for example, by claiming that they sent you an electronic money transfer when they actually didn't and then demanding the item. So do just make sure to look out for your safety and make sure you're not being scammed. And especially it's a good idea to do a few minutes of research on what the common scams are on your platform of choice to make sure that you're avoiding those. If you're wondering how to price your items, You can check comps, which means to go on the platform that you're selling on and look for similar items and check and see how people are pricing them and then kind of price comparably to those. Or if you're not sure how to price something, you can always look at the new price of the item. So things that sell really well are, for example, electronics like phones and laptops and speakers. And those will generally sell over half of their retail price. So you can start by pricing it at around half of the new price and then go up and down from there depending on the level of interest. And then some things that sell notoriously poorly are things like, for example, dishes like kitchenware, which generally doesn't sell for a lot just because there's such a glut of low-priced items. For example, anyone can go to Ikea and get a plate for $1, so you can't really expect much more than that for a used plate. And then low value clothing as well doesn't sell for a lot. So if you shop at fast fashion brands, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff, even if you bought it for a reasonable price, sometimes won't even sell for 10 or 20% of its retail value. So you shouldn't be looking to get a ton out of clothing, for example, from Sheen or from H&M or retailers like that. So let's say now you're working on establishing an income, you're working on getting rid of your stuff and signing over your lease agreement. The next thing to do is to consider what your trip is actually going to look like, because this is really important for budgeting and for figuring out how much money you're going to need. So considerations here are working hours. So if you're someone who needs to be up at certain hours of the day in order to work, then having a favorable time zone is certainly an important consideration. But then also things like cost and safety are important factors. So you're going to want to look at how much accommodation costs where you want to go and how much food costs, but then also what you're actually going to do during your trip. So are you going to go sightseeing every day? And how often are you going to move from city to city? Typically, a lot of the travel costs associated with traveling long term come about when you're transitioning from one city to the next rather than when you're staying put. So the more you're planning on hopping around, the higher your budget is going to need to be. If you have absolutely no idea what this budget should look like and what constitutes a cheap or expensive destination, very loosely speaking, you can travel long-term on a budget for 50 to 100 US dollars per day. So certainly it's possible to be both below and above that range, but very loosely speaking, If you're looking at a particular destination or a particular style of travel and you're spending less than $50 a day, then that's a very good budget to have. And if you're spending more than $100 a day, then that's certainly more expensive than it needs to be. So it'll depend on how many financial resources you have and how much money you're willing to spend. But, if you need something to shoot for, then that fifty to seventy five or fifty to one hundred dollars a day on average is a good range to be in. So I did make an entire episode dedicating to, eating cheap while you're traveling, and you can go listen to that episode if that's something you're interested in. But at the very least, when you're planning your budget, the core of that budget is always going to be the trio of accommodation, food, and travel. So at the very least, when you're looking into any destination, consider those three things and what the daily cost is going to be. Some other things to factor into your budget that are really important. First of all, is your business expenses. This varies widely depending on the type of work that you're doing, but make sure that you're not just looking at the profit you're going to make off of each project, but also the amount of money that you have to put into creating that project. And that can be anywhere from physical products to software costs to ongoing subscriptions that you need to be able to maintain. Another thing to consider is insurance. So there are insurance plans now that are catered to nomads who are traveling for long periods of time and who aren't necessarily going back to their home base within a few weeks. And in general, those insurance plans tend to cost somewhere around the 50 US dollars per month. Just be aware, though, that a lot of those insurance plans don't take into consideration high-risk activities. So if you're somebody who's going to be going skydiving, or you're going on adventurous treks, or even if you're planning on going out and getting drunk at night and then walking back home in the dark, those are all things that your insurers could consider to be high-risk activities that won't be covered. So before you choose an insurance, make sure that you know what you plan to do on your trip and make sure to have an insurance that covers all of those things. And then... Kind of supplementary to insurance is also the cost of medical things, like, for example, getting vaccinated. So in some regions of the world, you do have to have a vaccination certificate, and there are certain vaccinations that are mandatory. So things like yellow fever, for example, you'll have to pay for those vaccines, depending on where you live. But in most most cases, those vaccines won't be covered. So you'll have to pay for that before you leave and have that certificate in order to be able to get into those countries. Other things to consider are some of the things that you're going to have to cover for at-home costs. So one thing is where your mail is going to go. So there's one of two ways you can approach this. The first way is to go to your local post office and to rent out a mailbox and or to ask a family friend if you can borrow their mailbox and have everything be sent to their address. So to rent a mailbox costs maybe about 50 to to $100 a month, depending on where you live and the cost of postal services there and also how big a mailbox you want to have. Because if you get a big fat package and your mailbox is really, really tiny, that's not going to work. The other thing you can do is there are mail services that will open your mail for you and they'll then send you an email saying hey you got this and here's a scan of the letter that you received and here's a picture of the thing that was inside the package that you just received and where do you want us to send this to. And this is a really convenient service and certainly preferable for a lot of people to coming back home for Christmas once a year and having a year's worth of letters stacked up, some of them which needed to be addressed like six months ago, right? So if you're the kind of person that is getting a lot of relevant mail that needs to be looked at and you don't have anybody who you trust in order to go through your mail for you, then that's a service that you might be willing to pay extra for. You'll also, again, want to factor in the cost of activities. So every time you go on a tour or do something related to the place that you're in, that's going to cost money, obviously. So don't just plan your budget around your core expenses without considering any of the leisure activities that you're looking to undertake. And then also consider the cost of gear before you leave. So at the very least, you're probably going to want to buy a good backpack if you don't already have one and some versatile clothing, and a really good digital setup. For example, some chargers and some international adapters, and a good laptop, because that laptop is probably what you're going to be relying on for your entire income, and that's not something that you'll want to skip out on, especially if you need a laptop that can perform reliably and perform at a really high level. Other things to consider in this digital realm include a VPN, which doesn't cost a lot, but it's something that's really good to have, and then also your bank account. So there are two main types of things to avoid. The first is ATM fees. So there are some banks who will charge you for taking money out of an international ATM, And you'll get hit by two separate fees, one from your home bank for having taken the money out of their bank, and another one for the ATM that's actually administering the transaction from the bank in the country that you're in. So you want to avoid that double whammy at all costs. So make sure to find a bank that it, at the very least doesn't charge any ATM fees. And then also every bank has a certain number of bank partners internationally where you can go to that bank and not have to pay any fees in order to withdraw cash from there. So try to find a bank that not only doesn't charge any ATM fees internationally, but also has a lot of partners so that no matter where you are in the world, you can, you can withdraw cash cash from a bank and not get charged any fees for doing so. And then the second half of banking expenses is credit cards. So some countries are still primarily cash economies and you'll mostly be using cash in those places. But for the places that aren't, it can be really convenient to use a credit card, especially to avoid having to carry around large amounts of cash with you. And in the cases where you're using a credit card, oftentimes you'll be charged a currency conversion fee. So that's an additional fee that's tacked on to the exchange rate, usually as a percentage that your bank's going to take away from you. And 1% or 2% doesn't seem like a lot, but that can really add up when it's being added to every single transaction that you do. So try to find a credit card that charges minimal currency conversion fees or no fee at all, and that just gives you the exchange rate. Now, as a last note on budget, something that you'll want to have set up before you leave is some sort of emergency ditch fund. And this is really no different in principle to having an emergency fund when you're living anywhere else because things do come up when you're traveling And you might might find yourself either stuck in a particular place or needing to get out of a particular place really, really quickly. And if you're dismissing this as something that is just never going to happen to you and something that you can go without, I think a very good example to look at is the recent COVID pandemic, where a lot of people either ended up stuck outside of their country of citizenship or ended up having to forego over a lot of money on very short notice in order to get home. And you can look at news articles from that period of time with government scrambling to get their citizens home and with individual people scrambling to somehow get out of a country that was very quickly shutting down and into their home country, which itself had shut down or just being stuck where they were entirely. So this is something that has happened and can happen again. And if you think you're immune to that or if you think you don't need an emergency fund and you'll just wing it, you are wrong. You need an emergency fund. This is a non-negotiable part of being a long-term traveler. And you'll not only need this for extraordinary circumstances, but also just cases where you might be in a particular country or in a particular situation where you don't feel safe and you just want to have the option of leaving because you never want to be stuck in a position where you don't feel entirely safe and you wish you could leave, but you don't have the financial capacity in order to do so. So I have one of these as well. I've only had to use it once. And in this situation, essentially, I just decided that I didn't feel comfortable in the situation I was in and that I was just going to take the next flight out, which is what I ended up doing. So I was staying in a hotel at the time. So I went back to the hotel where I was staying. I booked a flight and I was on that flight within about 12 hours. So as you can imagine, these situations can get quite expensive, but they're also things that aren't entirely within your control. So have an emergency fund, but also have an emergency fund that has enough money in it and have an emergency fund that you're not afraid to use because that's what the money is there for. And it's something that if you travel long enough, you are eventually going to land in a situation where you have to use it in some form or another. In my case, I didn't even use all of my emergency fund money, I basically just paid for a very expensive ride to the airport and I flew a few hours to a country that I was familiar with and felt safe in and then basically just spent a few days in that country chilling out and watching Netflix and that was pretty much the end of it. And then after that I went on with the rest of my trip as planned. But more commonly when you end up in an unexpected situation. Maybe something has happened at home and you need to fly home or maybe you've gotten hurt and those sort of extended emergencies are where the costs really start to rack up. So just, again, make sure that you have a comfortable emergency budget. I would suggest being able to sustain yourself on that emergency fund for at least a month at your normal level of spending and to also have, at bare minimum, enough money in that fund in order to be able to fly home no matter where you're at. So with that said, we're going to wrap up here, but I hope if this was previously very intimidating to you, this gives you a rough overview of the things that need to get done before you leave and the rough order within which to do them. If you're interested in learning more about this, do stick around for future episodes. And thank you so much for listening today.